What's up, Far Far Away family? This is your host, Kyle, and you're about to embark on an epic journey through the Star Wars The Old Republic. Welcome to Star Wars Audio Archives, where we explore the far reaches of this iconic galaxy like never before. I hope you are ready for an unforgettable adventure, because this is just the beginning. This season, we're going to take a deep dive into the Old Republic's deceit, the story that the Old Republic video game was based on. So I will bring you closer to this story than ever before. This is the first episode of this season, and I can already tell you it's going to be a wild ride. We got a packed schedule of thrilling encounters, intergalactic adventures, and plenty of Star Wars magic to keep you entertained. So buckle up and get ready to blast off into Star Wars The Old Republic's Deceit. Are you ready to get this season started? Then let's do it right now. Day one. Fat Man shivered, her metal groaning. Zirid pushed her through Ord Mantell's atmosphere. Friction turned the air to fire, and Zirid watched the orange glow of the flames through the transparisteel of the freighter's cockpit. He was gripping the stick too tightly, he realized, and relaxed. He hated atmosphere entries, always had. The long 40 count when heat, speed, and ionized particles caused a temporary sensor blackout. He never knew what kind of sky he'd encounter when he came out of the dark. Back when he'd carted Havoc Squadron commandos in a Republic gully jumper, he and his fellow pilots had likened the blackout to diving blind off a seaside cliff. You always hope to hit deep water, they'd say. But sooner or later, the tide goes out and you go hard into rock. Or hard into a blistering crossfire. Didn't matter, really. The effect would be the same. Coming out of the dark, he said, as the flame diminished and the sky opened below. No one acknowledged the words. He flew Fat Man alone. Worked alone. The only things he carted anymore were weapons for the exchange. He had his reasons, but he tried hard not to think too hard about what he was doing. He leveled the ship off, straightened, and ran a quick sweep of the surrounding sky. The sensors picked up nothing. Deep water and it feels fine, he said, smiling. On most planets, the moment he cleared the atmosphere, he'd have been busy dodging interdiction by the planetary government. But not on Ord Mantell. The planet was a hive of crime syndicates, mercenaries, bounty hunters, smugglers, weapons dealers, and spice runners. And those were just the people who ran the place. Factional wars and assassinations occupied their attention, not governance, and certainly not law enforcement. The upper and lower latitudes of the planet in particular were sparsely settled and almost never patrolled, a literal no-being's land. Zerid would have been surprised if the government had servsats running orbits over the area. And all that suited him fine. Fat Man broke through a thick pink blanket of clouds, and the brown, blue, and white of Ord Mantell's northern hemisphere filled out Zerid's field of vision. Snow and ice peppered the canopy, frozen shrapnel beating a steady rhythm on Fat Man's hull. The setting sun suffused a large swath of the world with orange and red. The northern sea roiled below him, choppy and dark, the irregular white circles of breaking surf denoting the thousands of uncharted islands that poked through the water's surface. To the west, far in the distance, he could make out the hazy edge of a continent 
and the thin spine of snow-capped cloud-topped mountains that ran along its north-south axis. Motion drew his eye. A flock of leather wings, too small to cause a sensor blip, flew 200 meters to starboard and well below him. The tents of their huge, membranous wings flapping slowly in the freezing wind. The arc of the flock like a parenthesis. They were heading south for warmer air and paid him no heed as he flew over and past them, their dull black eyes blinking against the snow and ice. He pulled back on the ion engines and slowed still further. A yawn forced itself past his teeth. He sat up straight and tried to blink away the fatigue, but it was as stubborn as an angry bantha. He'd given the ship to the autopilot and dozed during the hyperspace run from Volta, but that was all the rack he'd had in the last two standard days. It was catching up to him. He scratched at the stubble of his beard, rubbed the back of his neck, and plugged the drop coordinates into the Navicomp. The comp linked with one of Ord Mantell's unsecured geosync sats and fed back the location and course to Fatman. Sirid's HUD displayed it on the cockpit canopy. He eyed the location and put his finger on the destination. Some island no one has ever heard of. Up here where no one ever goes. Sounds about right. Zirid turned the ship over to the autopilot, and it banked him toward the island. His mind wandered as Fat Man cut through the sky. The steady pattern of ice and snow on the canopy sang him a lullaby. His thoughts drifted back through the clouds to the past, to the days before the accident, before he'd left the Marines. Back then, he'd worn the uniform proudly, and had still been able to look himself in the mirror. He caught himself, caught the burgeoning self-pity, and stopped the thoughts cold. He knew where it would lead. Stow that soldier, he said to himself. He was what he was, and things were what they were. Focus on the work, Z-Man. He checked his location against the coordinates in the Navicomp. Almost there. Gear up and get frosty, he said echoing the words he used to say to his commandos. 90 seconds to the LZ. He continued his ritual, checking the charge on his blasters, tightening the straps on his composite armor vest, getting his mind right. Ahead, he saw the island where he would make the drop. Ten square clicks of volcanic rock, fringed with a bad haircut of waist-high scrub whipping in the wind. The place would probably be underwater and gone next year. He angled lower, flew a wide circle, unable to see much detail due to the snow. He ran a scanner sweep, as always, and the chirp of his instrumentation surprised him. A ship was already on the island. He checked his wrist chrono and saw that he was a full twenty standard minutes early. He'd made this run three times, and Arrigo, he was sure the man's real name was not Arrigo, had never before arrived early. He descended to a few hundred meters to get a better look. Rigo's freighter, the doghouse, shaped not unlike the body of a legless beetle, sat in a clearing on the east side of the island. Its landing ramp was down and stuck out of its belly like a tongue. Halogens glared into the fading twilight and reflected off the falling snow, turning the flakes into glittering jewels. He saw three men lingering around the ramp, though he was too far away to notice any details other than their white winter parkas. They spotted Fat Man and one waved a gloved hand. Zirid licked his lips and frowned. Something fell off. Flares went up from the freighter and burst in the air, 
Green, red, red, green. That was the correct sequence. I circled one more time, staring down through the swirl of snow, but saw nothing to cause alarm. No other ships on the island or in the surrounding sea. He pushed aside his concern and chalked his feelings up to the usual tension caused by dealing with miscreants and criminals. In any event, he could not afford to mess up a drop of several hundred million credits of hardware because he felt skittish. The ultimate buyer, whoever that was, would be unhappy, and the exchange would take the lost profits from Zerid in blood and broken bones, then tack it on to the debt he already owed them. He'd lost track of exactly how much that was, but knew it was at least two million credits on the note for Fat Man, plus almost half that again on advances for Era's medical treatment. Though he'd kept Era's existence a secret, and his handler thought the latter were for gambling losses. Elsie is secure. He hoped saying it would make it so. Going in. The hum of the reverse thrusters and a swirl of blown snow presaged the thump of Fat Man's touching down on the rock. He landed less than 50 meters from Arigo's ship. For a moment, he sat in the cockpit, perfectly still, staring at the falling snow, knowing there'd be another drop after this one, then another, then another, and he'd still owe the exchange more than he'd ever be able to pay. He was on a treadmill, with no idea how to get off. Didn't matter, though. The point was to earn for Era. Maybe get her a hover chair instead of that wheeled antique. Better yet, prosthesis. He blew out of breath, stood, and tried to find his calm as he threw on a winter parka and fingerless gloves. In the cargo hold, he had to pick his way through the maze of shipping containers. He avoided looking directly at the thick black lettering on their sides, though he knew it by heart. Had seen such crates many times in his military career. Danger, munitions, for military use only. Keep away from intense heat or other energy sources. In the crates were upward of 300 million credits worth of crew-served laser cannons, MPAPPs, grenades, and enough ammunition to keep even the craziest fire team grinning and sinning for months. Near the base landing ramp, he saw that three of the four securing straps had come loose from one of the crates of grenades. He was lucky the crate hadn't bounced around in transit. Maybe the straps had snapped when he sat down on the island. He chose to believe that rather than admit to his own sloppiness. He did not bother reattaching the straps. Arigo's men would have to undo them to unload anyway. He loosened his blasters in their holsters and pushed the button to open the bay and lower the ramp. The door descended and snow and cold blew in, the tang of ocean salt. He stepped out into the wind. The light of the setting sun made him squint. He'd been in only artificial light for upward of twelve hours. His boots crunched on the snow-dusted black rock. His exhalations steamed away in the wind. Two of the men from Arigo's freighter detached themselves from their ship and met him halfway. Both were human and bearded. One had a patched eye and a scar like a lightning stroke down one cheek. Both wore blasters on their hips. Like Zerid, both had the butt straps undone. Recognizing neither of them rekindled Zerid's earlier concerns. He had a mind for faces, and both of the men were strangers. The drop was starting to taste sour. Where's Arigo? Zerid asked. Doing what Arigo does, Scar said and gestured vaguely. 
Send us instead. No worries, though, right? No scar shifted on his feet, antsy, twitchy. Zerib nodded, kept his face expressionless as his heart rate amped up and adrenaline started making him warm. Everything smelled wrong, and he'd learned over the years to trust his sense of smell. You Zerib? Scar asked. Z-Man. No one called him Zerid except his sister-in-law. And Aaron once. But Aaron happened long ago. <laughs> Z-Man! <laughs> Echoed Noscar, shifting on his feet and half-giggling. Sound funny to you? Zerid asked him. Before Noscar could answer, Scar asked, Where's the cargo? Zerid looked past the two men before him to the third, who lingered near the landing ramp of Arigo's ship. The man's body language, too focused on the verbal exchange, too coiled, reinforced Zerid's worry. He reminded Zerid of the way Rooks looked when facing Imperials for the first time. All attitude and hair trigger. Suspicion stacked up into certainty. The drop didn't just smell bad, it was bad. Arigo was dead, and the crew before him worked for some other faction on Org Mantel or work for some organization sideways to the exchange. Whatever. Didn't matter to Zerid. He never bothered to follow who was fighting who, so he just trusted no one. But what did matter to him was that the three men standing before him probably had tortured information from Arigo, and would kill Zerid as soon as they confirmed the presence of the cargo. And there could be still more men hidden aboard the freighter. It seemed he'd descended out of atmospheric blackout and into a crossfire after all. What else was new? Why you call that ship Fat Man? Noscar asked. Arigo must have told them the name of Zerid's ship, because Fat Man bore no identifying markings. Zerid used fake ship registries on almost every planet on which he docked. Because it takes a lot to fill her belly. Ship's a she, though, right? Why not Fat Woman? Seemed disrespectful. Noscar frowned. Huh? To who? Zerid did not bother to answer. All he'd wanted to do was drop off the munitions, retire some of his debt to the exchange, and get back to his daughter before he had to get back out in the black and get dirty again. Something wrong? Scar asked, his tone wary. You look upset. No, Zerid said, and forced a half-smile. Everything's the same as always. The men plastered on uncertain grins, Unclear on Zerid's meaning. Right, Scar said. Same as always. Knowing how things would go, Zerid felt the calm he usually did when danger impended. He flashed for a moment on Era's face. On what she'd do if he died on Ord Mantel, on some no-name island. He pushed the thoughts away. No distractions. Cargo's in the main bay. Send your man around. The ship's open. The expressions on the faces of both men hardened. The change nearly imperceptible but clear to Zerid. A transformation that betrayed their intention to murder. Scar ordered Noscar to go check the cargo. You'll need a lifter, Zerid said, readying himself, focusing on speed and precision. That stuff ain't a few kilos. Noscar stopped within reach of Zerid, looking back at Scar for guidance, his expression uncertain. Nah said Scar, his hand hovering near his holster, the motion too casual to be casual. 
I just want him to make sure it's all there. Then I'll let my people know to release payment. He held up his arm, as if to show Zerid a wrist comlink, but the Parker covered it. It's all there, Zerid said. Go on, said Scar to Noscar. Check it. Oh, Zerid said and snapped his fingers. There is one other thing. Noscar sighed, stopped, faced him, eyebrows raised in a question, breath steaming out of his nostrils. What's that? Zerid made a knife of his left hand and drove his fingertips into Noscar's throat. While Noscar crumpled to the snow, gagging, Zerid jerked one of his blasters free of its hip holster and put a hole through Scar's chest before the man could do anything more than take a surprise step backward and put his hand on the grip of his own weapon. Scar staggered back two more steps, his mouth working but making no sound. His right arm held up, palm out, as if he could stop the shot that had already killed him. Scar toppled to the ground. Zerid took a wild shot at the third man near the doghouse's landing ramp, but missed high. The third man made himself small beside the doghouse, drew his blaster pistol, and shouted into a wrist comm link. Zerid saw movement within the cargo bay of a Rigo ship. More men with ill intent. No way to know how many. He cursed, fired a covering shot, then turned and ran for Fat Man. A blaster shot put a smoking black furrow through the sleeve of his partner, but missed flesh. Another rang off the hull of that man. A third shot him square in the back. It felt like getting run over by a speeder. The impact drove the air from his lungs and plowed him face first into the snow. He smelled smoke. His armored vest had ablated the shot. Adrenaline got him to his feet just as fast as he had gone down. Gasping, trying to refill his lungs, he ducked behind a landing skid for cover and wiped the snow from his face. He poked his head out for a moment to look back. Saw that no Scar had stopped gagging and started being dead. That Scar stayed politely still, and that six more men were dashing toward him, two armed with blaster rifles and the rest with pistols. His armor would not stop a rifle bolt. A shot slammed into the landing skip. Another into the snow at his feet. Another. Another. Stang, he cursed. The safety of Fat Man's landing ramp and cargo bay, only a few steps from him, somehow looked ten kilometers away. He took a blaster in each hand, stretched his arm around to either side of the landing skid, and fired as fast as he could. He pulled the trigger in the direction of the onrushing men. He could not see. He did not care if he hit anyone. He just wanted to get them on the ground. After he'd squeezed off more than a dozen shots with no return fire, he darted out from behind the skid and toward the ramp. He reached it before the shooters were covered enough to let loose another barrage. A few bolts chased him up the ramp, winging off the metal. Sparks flew, and the smell of melted plastoid mixed with the ocean air. He ran past the button to raise the ramp, struck at it, and hurried on toward the cockpit. Only after he'd nearly cleared the cargo bay did it register with him that he wasn't hearing the whir of turning gears. He whirled around, cursed. In his haste, he missed the button to raise the landing ramp. He heard shouts from outside and dared not go back. He could close the bay from the control panel in the cockpit, but he had to hurry. He pelted through Fat Man's corridors, shouldered open the door to the cockpit, and started punching in the launch sequence. Fat Man's thrusters went live, and the ship lurched upward. Blaster fire thumped off the hull, but it did no harm. He tried to look down out of the canopy, but the ship was angled upward, and he could not see the ground. He punched the control to move it forward, and heard the distant squeal of metal on metal. It had come from the cargo bay. Something was slipping around in there. 
A loose container of grenades. And he'd still forgotten to seal the bay. Cursing himself for a fool, he flicked the switch that bought up the ramp, then sealed the cargo bay and evacuated it of oxygen. If anyone had gotten aboard, they would suffocate in there. He took the controls in hand and fired Fat Man's engines. The ship shot upward. He turned her as he rose, took a look back at the island. For a moment, he was confused by what he saw, but realization dawned. When Fat Man had lurched up and forward, the remaining straps securing the container of grenades had snapped, and the whole shipping container had slid right out the open landing ramp. He was lucky it hadn't exploded. The men who had ambushed him were gathered around the crate, probably wondering what was inside. A quick head count put their number at six, so he figured none had gotten on board Fat Man, and none of them seemed to be making for a Rigo ship, so Zerid assumed they had no intention of pursuing him in the air. Maybe they were happy enough with the one container. Amateurs, then. Pirates, maybe. Zerid knew he would have to answer to Orin, his handler, not only for the deal going sour, but also for the lost grenades. Griffin treadmill just kept going faster and faster. He considered throwing Fat Man's ion engines on full, clearing Ord Mantell's gravity well, and heading into hyperspace, but changed his mind. He was annoyed and thought he had a better idea. He wheeled the freighter around and accelerated. Weapons going live, he said, and activated the over and under plasma cannons mounted on Fat Man's sides. The men on the ground, having assumed he would flee, did not notice him coming until he had closed to 500 meters. Faces stared up at him, hands pointed, and the men started to scramble. A few blaster shots from one of the men traced red lines through the sky but a blaster could not harm the ship. Zerid took aim. The targeting computer centered on the crate. LZ is hot, he said, and lit him up. For an instant, pulsing orange lines connected the ship to the island, the ship to the crate of grenades. Then, as the grenades exploded, the lines blossomed into an orange cloud of heat, light, and smoke that engulfed the area. Shrapnel pattered against the canopy, metal this time, not ice, and the shockwave rocked Fat Man slightly as Zerid peeled the ship off and headed skyward. He glanced back and saw six motionless smoking forms scattered around the blast radius. That was for you, Arigo. He would still have some explaining to do, but at least he'd taken care of the ambushers. That had to be worth something to the exchange. Or so he hoped. <laughs> Darth Malgus strode the autowalk. The steady rap of his boots on the pavement, the tick of a chrono counting down the limited time remaining to the Republic. Speeders, swoops, and air cars roared above him in unending streams. The motorized circulatory system of the Republic's heart. Sky rises, bridges, lifts, and plazas covered the entire surface of Coruscant to a height of kilometers all of it the trappings of a wealthy, decadent civilization. A sheath that sought to hide the rot in a cocoon of duracrete and transperisteel. But Malgus smelled the decay under the veneer, and he would show them the price of weakness, of complacency. Soon, it would all burn. He would lay waste to Coruscant. He knew this. He had known it for decades. Memories floated up from the depths of his mind. He recalled his first pilgrimage to Korriban, 
remembered the profound sense of holiness he had felt as he walked in isolation through its rocky deserts, through the dusty canyons lined with the tombs of his ancient Sith forebears. He had felt the Force everywhere, had exulted in it, and in his isolation, it had showed him a vision. He had seen systems in flames, the fall of a galaxy-spanning government. He had believed then, had known then and ever since, that the destruction of the Jedi and their Republic would fall to him. What are you thinking, Varathin? Elena asked him. Only Elena called him by his given name, and only when they were alone. He enjoyed the smooth way the syllables rolled off her tongue and lips, but he tolerated it from no others. I am thinking of fire, he said, the hated respirator partially muffling his voice. She walked beside him, as beautiful and dangerous as an elegantly crafted Lambarock. She clucked her tongue at his words, eyed him sidelong, but said nothing. Her lavender skin looked luminescent in the setting sun. Crowds thronged the plaza in which they walked, laughing, scowling, chatting. A human child, a young girl, caught Malgus's eye when she squealed with delight and ran to the waiting arms of a dark-haired woman, presumably her mother. The girl must have felt his gaze. She looked at him from over her mother's shoulder, her small face pinched in a question. He stared at her as he walked, and she looked away, burying her face in her mother's neck. Other than the girl, no one else marked his passage. The citizens of the Republic felt safe so deep in the core, and the sheer number of beings on Coruscant granted him anonymity. He walked among his prey, cowled, armored under his cloak, unnoticed and unknown, but heavy with purpose. This is a beautiful world, Alina said. Not for very much longer. His words seemed to startle her, though he could not imagine why. Veritin. He saw her swallow, look away. Whatever words she intended after his name seemed stuck on the scar that marred her throat. You may speak your mind, Alina. Still, she looked away, taking in the scenery around them, as if memorizing Coruscant before Malgus and the Empire lit it aflame. When will the fighting end? The premise of the question confounded him. What do you mean? Your life is war, Veradin. Our life. When will it end? It cannot always be so. He nodded then, understanding the flavor of the conversation to come. She would try to disguise self-perceived wisdom behind questions. As usual, he was of two minds about it. On the one hand, she was but a servant, a woman, who provided him companionship when he wished it. On the other hand... She was Elena. His Elena. You choose to fight beside me, Elena. You have killed many in the name of the Empire. The lavender skin of her cheeks darkened to purple. I have not killed for the Empire. I fight and kill for you. You know this, but you... You fight for the Empire. Only for the Empire? No. I fight because that is what I was made to do, and the Empire is the instrument through which I realize my purpose. The Empire is war made manifest. That is why it is perfect. She shook her head. 
Perfect. Millions die in its wars. Billions. Beings die in war. That is the price that must be paid. She stared at a group of children following an adult. Perhaps a teacher. The price for what? Why constant war? Why constant expansion? What is it the Empire wants? What is it you want? Behind his respirator, he smiled as he might when entertaining the questions of a precocious child. Want is not the point. I serve the Force. The Force is conflict. The Empire is conflict. The two are congruent. You speak as if it were mathematics. It is. The Jedi do not think so. He fought down a flash of anger. The Jedi understand the Force only partially. Some of them are even powerful in its use. But they fail to comprehend the fundamental nature of the Force. That it is conflict. That a light side and a dark side exist is proof of this. He thought the conversation over. But she did not relent. Why? Why what? Why conflict? Why would the Force exist to foment conflict and death? He sighed, becoming agitated. Because the survivors of the conflict come to understand the Force more deeply. Their understanding evolves. That is purpose enough. Her expression showed that she still did not understand. His tone sharpened as his exasperation grew. Conflict drives a more perfect understanding of the Force. The Empire expands and creates conflict. In that regard, the Empire is an instrument of the Force, you see? The Jedi do not understand this. They use the Force to repress themselves and others, to enforce their version of tolerance, harmony. They are fools, and they will see that after today. For a time, Elena said nothing, and the hum and buzz of Coruscant filled the silent gulf between them. When she finally spoke, she sounded like the shy girl he had first rescued from the slave pens of Geonosis. Constant war will be your life? Our life? Nothing more? He understood her motives at last. She wanted their relationship to change. Wanted it to... to evolve. But his dedication to the perfection of the Empire, which allowed him to perfect his understanding of the Force precluded any preeminent attachments. I am a Sith warrior. And things with us will always be as they are? Master and servant, this displeases you. You do not treat me as your servant. Not always. He let a hardness he did not feel creep into his voice. Yet a servant you are. Do not forget it. The lavender skin of her cheeks darkened to purple, but not with shame, with anger. She stopped, turned, and stared directly into his face. He felt as if the cowl and respirator he wore hid nothing from her. I know your nature better than you know yourself. I nursed you after the Battle of Alderaan, when you lay near death from that Jedi witch. You speak the words in earnest. Conflict, evolution, perfection. But belief does not reach your heart. He stared at her, the twin stalks of her leku framing the lovely symmetry of her face. She held his eyes, unflinching, 
the scar that stretched across her throat visible under her collar. Struck by her beauty, he grabbed her by the wrist and pulled her to him. She did not resist and pressed her curves against him. He slipped his respirator to the side and kissed her with his ruined lips, kissed her hard. Perhaps you do not know me as well as you imagine, he said, his voice unmuffled by the mechanical filter of his respirator. As a boy, he had killed a Twilix servant woman in his adopted father's house, his first kill. She had committed some minor offense he could no longer recall, and that had never mattered. He had not killed her because of her misdeed. He'd killed her to assure himself that he could kill. He still recalled the pride with which his adoptive father had regarded the Twilix's corpse. Soon afterward, Malgus had been sent to the Sith Academy on Drummond Kos. I think I do know you, she said defiant. He smiled. She smiled. And he released her. He replaced his respirator and checked the chrono on his wrist. If all went as planned, the defense grid should come down in moments. A surge of emotion went through him, born in his certainty that his entire life had for its purpose the next hour, that the Force had brought him to the moment when he would engineer the fall of the Republic and the ascendance of the Empire. His comlink received a message. He tapped a key to decrypt it. It is done, the words read. The Mandalorian had done her job. He did not know the woman's real name, so in his mind she had become a title, the Mandalorian. He knew only that she worked for money, hated the Jedi for some personal reason known only to herself, and was extraordinarily skilled. The message told him that the planet's defense grid had gone dark. Yet none of the thousands of sentients who shared the plaza with him looked concerned. No alarm had sounded. Military and security ships were not racing through the sky. The civilian and military authorities were oblivious to the fact that Coruscant's security net had been compromised. But they would notice it before long, and they would disbelieve what their instruments told them. They would run a test to determine if the readings were accurate. By then, Coruscant would be aflame. We are moving, he keyed into the device. Meet us within. He took one last look around, at the children and their parents playing, laughing, eating, everyone going about their lives, unaware that everything was about to change. Come, he said to Alina, and picked up his pace. His cloak swirled around him, so too his anger. Moments later, he received another coded transmission, this one from the hijacked dropship. Jump complete. On approach. Arrival in 90 seconds. Ahead, he saw the four towers surrounding the stacked tiers of the Jedi Temple. Its ancient stone as orange as fire in the light of the setting sun. The civilians seemed to give it a wide berth, as if it were a holy place rather than one of sacrilege. He would reduce it to rubble. He walked toward it, and fate walked beside him. Statues of long-dead Jedi Masters lined the approach to the temple's enormous doorway. The setting sun stretched the statue's tenebrous forms across the Duracrete. He walked through the shadows and past them, noting some names. Odon Ur, Uru, Arka Jeth. You have been deceived, he whispered to them. Your time is past. 
most of the Jedi Order's current masters were away, either participating in the sham negotiations on Alderaan or protecting Republic interests off-planet. But the temple was not entirely unguarded. Three uniformed Republic soldiers, blaster rifles in hand, stood watchful near the doors. He sends two more on a high ledge to his left. Elena tensed beside him, but she did not falter. He checked his chrono again. Fifty-three seconds. The three soldiers, wary, watched him and Alina approach. One of them spoke into a wrist comm link, perhaps querying a command center within. They would not know what to make of Malchus. Despite the war, they felt safe in their enclave, in the center of the Republic. He would teach them otherwise. Stop right there, one of them said. I cannot stop, Malchus said too softly to hear behind the respirator. Not ever. Still heart, still mind. These things eluded Aaron, floated before her like snowflakes in sun, visible for a moment, then melted and gone. She fiddled with the smooth coral beads of the Nautilan Tranquility Bracelet Master Zalo had given her when she'd been promoted to Jedi Knight. Silently counting the smooth, slick beads, sliding them over their chain one after another. She sought the calm of the Force. No use. What was wrong with her? Outside, speeders hummed past the large window that looked out on a bucolic, beautiful Alderaanian landscape suitable for a painting. Inside, she felt turmoil. Ordinarily, she was better able to shield herself from surrounding emotions. She usually considered her empathic sense a boon of the Force. But now... She realized she was bouncing her leg. Stopped. She crossed and uncrossed her legs. Did it again. Sayo sat beside her. Calloused hands crossed over his lap, as still as the towering statuary of Alderanian statesmen that lined the domed, marble-tiled hall in which they sat. Light from the setting sun poured through the window pushing long shadows across the floor. Sayo did not look at her when he spoke. You are restless. Yes. In truth, she felt as if she were a boiling pot, the steam of her emotional state seeking escape around the lid of her control. The air felt charged, agitated. She would have attributed the feelings to the stress of the peace negotiations, but it seemed to her something more. She felt a doom creeping up on her. A darkness. Was the Force trying to tell her something? Restlessness ill suits you, Sayo said. I know. I feel... odd. His expression did not change behind his short beard, but he would know to take her feelings seriously. Odd? How? She found his voice calming, which she supposed was part of the reason he had spoken. As if... as if something is about to happen. I can explain it no better than that. This originates from the Force? From your empathy? I don't know. I just feel like something is about to happen. He seemed to consider this, then said, Something is about to happen. He indicated with a glance the large double doors to their left, behind which Master Darnala and Jedi Knight Satil Shan had begun negotiations with the Sith delegation. An end to the war, if we are fortunate. 
She shook her head. Something other than that. She licked her lips, shifted in her seat. They sat in silence for a time. Aaron continued to fidget. Sayo cleared his throat, and his brown eyes fixed on a point across the hall. He spoke in a soft tone. They see your agitation. They interpret it as something it is not. She knew. She could feel their contempt, an irritation in her mind akin to a pebble in her boot. A pair of dark-cloaked Sith, members of the Empire's delegation to Alderaan, sat on a stone bench along the wall opposite Aaron and Sayo. Fifteen meters of polished marble floor, the two rows of Alderaanian statuary, and the gulf of competing philosophies separated Jedi and Sith. Unlike Aaron, the Sith did not appear agitated. They appeared coiled. Both of them leaned forward, forearms on their knees, eyes on Aaron and Sayo, as if they might spring to their feet at any moment. Aaron sensed their derision over her lack of control, could see it in the curl of the male's lip. She turned her eyes from the Sith and tried to occupy her mind by reading the names engraved on the pedestals of the statues. Kears Dorana, Velbin Orr, others she'd never heard of. But the presence of the Sith pressed against her Force sensitivity. She felt as if she were submerged deep underwater, the pressure pushing against her. She kept waiting for her ears to pop, to grant her release in a flash of pain. But it did not come and her eyes kept returning to the Sith pair. The woman, her slight frame lost in the shapelessness of her deep blue robes, glared through narrow, pale eyes. Her long, dark hair pulled into a topknot, hung like a hangman's noose from her scalp. The slim human man who sat beside her had the same sallow skin as the woman, the same pale eyes, the same glare. Aaron assumed them to be siblings. His dark hair and long beard braided and forked into two tines, could not hide a face so lined with scars and pitted with pockmarks that it reminded Aaron of the ground after an artillery barrage. Her eyes fell to the thin hilt of the man's lightsaber, the bulky, squared-off hilt of the woman's. She imagined their parents had noticed brother and sister's force potential when they had been young and shipped them off to Drummond Koss for indoctrination. She knew that's what they did with force sensitives in the Empire. If true... The Sith sitting across from her hadn't really fallen to the dark side. They'd never had a chance to rise and become anything else. She wondered how she might have turned out had she been born in the Empire. Would she have trained at Drummond Koss, her empathy put in service to pain and torture? Do not pity them, Sayo said in Bocce, as if reading her thoughts. Bocce sounded awkward on his lips. Or doubt yourself. His insights surprised her only slightly. He knew her well. Who is the empath now? She answered in the same tongue. They chose their path, as we all do. I know, she said. She shook her head over the wasted potential, and the eyes of both Sith tracked her movement with the alert, focused gaze of predators tracking prey. The academy at Drummond Koss had turned them into hunters, and they saw the universe through a hunter's eyes. Perhaps that explained the war in microcosm. But it did nothing to explain the proposed peace. And perhaps that was why Aaron felt so ill at ease. The offer to negotiate an end to the war had come like a lightning strike from the Sith Emperor. Unbidden, unexpected, 
sending a jolt through the government of the Republic. The Empire and the Republic had agreed to a meeting on Alderaan, the scene of an earlier Republic victory in the war. The number and makeup of the two delegations limited and strictly prescribed. To her surprise, Aaron was among the Jedi selected, though she was stationed perpetually outside the negotiation room. You have been honored by this selection, Master Zalo had told her before she took the ship for Alderaan, and she knew it to be true. Yet she had felt uneasy since leaving Coruscant. She felt even less at ease on Alderaan. It wasn't that she had fought on Alderaan before. It was... something else. I'm fine, she said to Sayo, hoping that saying it would work a spell and make it so. Lack of sleep, perhaps. Be at ease, he said. Everything will work out. She nodded, trying to believe it. She closed her eyes on the Sith and fell back on Master Zalo's teachings. She felt the Force within and around her, a matrix of glowing lines created by the intersection of all living things. As always, the line of Master Zalo glowed as brightly as a guiding star in her inner space. She missed him, his calm presence, his wisdom. Focusing inward, she picked a point in her mind made it a whole, and let her unease drain into it. Calm settled on her. When she opened her eyes, she fixed them on the male Sith. Something in his expression, a knowing look in his eye, half hidden by his sneer, troubled Aaron. But she kept her face neutral and held his gaze, as still as a sculpture. I see you, the Sith said from across the room. And I you. She answered, her voice steady. Holy moly, and that was just the first part of the scene. And it takes us back in time in the old Republic era. But the real excitement lies ahead, as the story is just beginning. And there are so many twists and turns and adventures to come, I can hardly contain my excitement. What else will this epic tale have in store for us? And that might just end this part of the story, because we still have a quote that we will do every week that might help you progress in life. And this week's quote comes to us from Darth Malgus himself. He said, success comes from the will to achieve, even in the face of great opposition and deceit. Well, that's pretty powerful. Success requires a strong determination to overcome obstacles, even when faced with great adversity and deception. This quote can be applied to many aspects in life, whether it be personal or professional goals. It emphasizes the importance of perseverance and the tenacity to achieve success. In Star Wars, The Old Republic's deceased story, this quote can be seen in the character of Darth Malgus. Malgus is driven by his desire to achieve greatness. Even when faced with opposition and deceit from his own kind, he is willing to go to great lengths to achieve his goals, including betraying his own people and ultimately becoming a formidable force in the Star Wars universe. Overall, the quote serves as a reminder that success is not simply handed to us, but must be earned through hard work and determination and a willingness to overcome challenges, even when they seem impossible. And I think that's all we have for this episode. We invite you to join us next week for part two of this thrilling story. We hope to see you there. Thank you for listening to Star Wars Audio Archive. Join us next time for more Star Wars adventures. If you would like to listen to other episodes of the show, you can follow us on your favorite podcast directory. If you enjoyed the show, we would greatly appreciate a five-star review. Once again, thank you for listening, and may the Force be with you.
Sway was created by Kenai Shed and is a production of Pick Film Media. This show was produced by Quinn McDaniel and it was distributed by Sway Cast Network. Star Wars The Old Republic of the Sea was read to you by Jason Ordega. Sound designed by Theodore Thompson. I am your host Kyle and we will see you next time in a galaxy far, far away.